0: Good morning. So, as DeAndre said, my name is Lindsay. I uh, have the privilege and joy of being married to Jan, who's one of the pastors here. And most of you know, uh, God has blessed our family beyond certainly what Jan and I planned. We have six children. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture here. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen these little people running around. The guy in my arms is Silas, he's our youngest. Next to me is Ezra, and Salem, and then our daughter Abby, who serves on the worship team. There's our son Luke, the tall gentleman, and then Joel there at the end, and of course you know Jan, so that's our family, and we are thankful for all the crazy, and all the noise, and all the adventures. It's never dull at my house. If you're bored, you're welcome to come over. But uh, I would get to talk to you this morning about the word great. When I say the word great, what pops into your head? I'm guessing the way we use it in our, in our culture, it's one of a couple different scenarios. One might be someone comes up to you and just says, hey, how are you today? And you say, oh, I'm great. How are you? Although probably what you mean is I have no idea how I am. I haven't stopped to think about it, but I'm being polite, so that's great. Or maybe uh, maybe you read a great book, or you had a great cup of coffee, or both together, and that would be really great. Or my family just got back from truly a great vacation. We got to go up to the Pacific Northwest, and we were on an island in the middle of the Puget Sound for a week. It was beautiful and cold, and and outside the cabin, it was very quiet. It was really nice. Or maybe someone gives you some good news, and they say, like, oh, hey, my son got a full-ride scholarship to Harvard. And you say, that's great. Although you may be thinking, my kid is just as smart as your kid, <laughs> right? So maybe not what you're saying. My point is that in our culture, the word great has this kind of indefined or undefined meaning. It can mean anything uh, generally positive in a range from, hey, I'm being polite, to I actually mean the opposite of what I'm saying, to, to you know, better than good but less than exceptional. And the reason I bring this up is because for the writers of the Bible, and certainly the first audiences of the Bible, the word great meant something much more. The word great in the New Testament is a Greek word, megos. So we get our word mega from that word. You can tell right away, there's a difference here in size, right? And that's appropriate because megas means big, high, large, loud, mighty, or of great space, or mass, or age. Did you know you could be great in age? number, quantity, or weight. So I could say by every measure of the word, we have a great family. (laughs) Loud, large, great in number, quantity. And the, the weight part of that definition might seem a little strange to us because of course in our culture, we're always trying to get rid of weight. But if you think about it in an ancient culture, weight was a pretty good indicator of wealth because a wealthy person had enough to eat and everyone else pretty much did not. Also, when they were paying for things, their method of currency was not paper bills or plastic or Bitcoin or all the things that we use. It was literally spices or coins or, um, or salt or uh, things like that, that that literally weight translated to greater value. So megas, big, great, huge, noticeable, important, not something you would overlook. And again, the reason I'm spending so much time on this today is because this idea of what does it mean to be great, this is the central concept of the passage in Scripture we're going to look at today. So before I get into that, let's pray together. Lord God, you truly are great. You're amazing, And God, I thank you for every man and woman in this room today, Lord. I thank you for every child in the building, Lord. Thank you for all of those online. Uh, God, I thank you that you are doing something bigger than we can imagine. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to get out of the way today, Father. I pray that you'd open our eyes, like Don talked about last week, Lord. We need your word. We need your Holy Spirit for any of this to make any difference in our lives. So Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes to see Jesus today? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be looking today in the book of Mark, which is in the New Testament. It's the second book of the New Testament, the, one of the four gospels, as we call them. Um, the gospels are the, written by followers of Jesus, typically. Uh, stories of Jesus um, told firsthand or first person. So Mark is actually... Not an original disciple of Jesus, but many people believe that he was telling the story as he heard it from Peter. So we're going to look in Mark 10, starting in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, James and John are brothers, they are two disciples of Jesus, and you know, in the Gospels, we we read a lot about the things that Jesus says and Jesus does. In fact, I'm in a small group of women here at the church, and we're reading through the book of Matthew, and I had some of them come to me and say, okay, can we stop reading about all the people Jesus healed, like? Let's move on from this. There's a lot about that in the Gospels. But this story we're we're reading actually is a little bit unique. It's kind of a behind-the-scenes look at some of the stuff that went on with Jesus and his disciples. Almost a reality TV, if you will. So here are two, two disciples, and they come to Jesus, James and John, and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, right away, does that question seem kind of strange to anybody else, like a blank check. If a police officer pulled you over and he rolled down the window and you say, I'll get you my license, but before I do, I want you to promise you're going to do for me whatever I ask. What do you think he would say or she would say to you? Are you sober? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is not, uh, not a question that you typically ask someone in, in power or authority, but at the same time, as I started to think about it, I mean, in reality, This is actually what most of us want from God, isn't it? I mean, God, I'll pray as long as you do your part. Or maybe you say it this way, why should I pray when God doesn't do what I ask? So maybe it's a really honest question, more honest than maybe I would be with my words. But I think it also shows there's a little bit of a disconnect between who we are and who God actually is. But Jesus is cool, he doesn't snort milk through his nose or anything, he he asks them a question. right? He's a good teacher. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. I have to tell you, this story has always kind of bothered me, and, and also the story where they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest, because I'm like, really? Really, children? I mean, think about it. Here's what they're asking Jesus, if you can picture this. Okay, Jesus is seated on his throne. End of time. We're in heaven. And everyone who's ever lived and believed in him are all standing here. And next to him are James and John. Not Abraham. Not Moses. Not Mother Teresa. Okay, she lived after them, but you get the idea, right? Like what makes them think that they, more than anyone who has ever lived, deserve these seats? Or maybe they think that they're gonna get them because they cut in line, right? Jesus says, I know you all wanna sit by me, but James and John asked first. (laughs) I don't know what they were thinking, but Jesus, he lets a little air out of their bubble, out of their balloon. He says, you don't know what you're asking which is a really nice way to say, wow, you're clueless. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And when he's talking about the cup and the baptism, he's talking about the fact that he was born He came here to suffer, to die on a cross. In fact, if you read the verses just before this story, he just pulled them aside and told them straight up, look, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna get arrested. He says, they will condemn me to death. They will hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. And three days later, I will rise. So he told them straight up what was happening. You see, James and John are hoping to cash in on this honor that Jesus is going to have, but Jesus is earning this honor. This is, this is not, not a free seat. And so, of course, John and James think they can handle it. They say, yeah, we can. We can drink it. And Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. And he's telling them, In the future, you are going to suffer. You are going to die for following me. And we know from history that this is what happened. James was one of the first martyrs killed by Herod. And and John, excuse me, was, was known as the man they couldn't kill because they tried so many different ways. He was boiled in oil. He was left alone on an island to die called Patmos. So Jesus says, yes, this is coming, but he continues To sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. There's no shortcut to greatness. Now this would have been a nice little story, a nice little bump in the road, although I do think it's funny that of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John doesn't tell this story. Wonder why? But anyway, it would have been a nice story except for the next verse. Now, when the 10, this is the other disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You think? This is where, don't you just wish somebody had an iPhone, right? Can you imagine like the shaky cam footage, right? You know, Peter's headed off to deal with John over here. He knocks him to the ground and they're yelling at each other and all I can say is this probably not allowed to say this, but I think Jesus was really lucky that all his disciples weren't women because, you know, we're all friends and everything, but then somebody goes behind somebody else's back and it is over, right? (laughs) You know it's true, girls, but hopefully Jesus calms everybody down. He's like, okay, guys, look, let's gather up. Let's talk about this. He's like, James and John are talking about because they want to know they're important. That's what's really going on here. That's the core of this desire. And the reason you're all fighting about it is because you need to know that too. So let's talk about what this looks like. So he calls them together in verse 42, and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, the Gentiles are non-Jewish people, so in our context, the rulers in our world system." Lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. I like that phrase, they lord it over them. He's talking about what greatness often looks like in our world. It means to control, to bring under one's power, to master, to subdue. So this matches our word great, megas, right, in our world. Someone who's big and important, putting everyone else into place underneath them. Now in our world, we're not big necessarily on mean people, but we certainly respect the people who have the power, don't we? I mean, the CEO who wrestles the company into shape even if he has to fire the secretaries who were there when it started, or the high school chemistry teacher who transforms into a ruthless drug lord after he's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. We may not call them great, but we certainly celebrate them. We respect them to some degree. But no surprise, Jesus is going to give us a different picture of greatness. He says in verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now when Jesus says great he's using our word megas. So he's saying whoever wants to be the most important person, the noticeable person, the person with weight and significance and value must be a servant. And this is the exact opposite of that phrase lord it over because instead of putting everybody under you you're intentionally putting yourself under Someone else. Not under like a doormat to be abused, but under in terms of priority, in terms of significance, in terms of importance. Do you see this contradiction he seems to be setting up here? The most important person, the person who everyone else looks to, is the person who makes themselves a nobody. Because that's what, kind of what that word means. The word is Diakonos, it's where we get our church word deacon. It's why our board is called the board of servant leaders. It means attendant, one who executes the commands of someone else, a waiter. And the word slave means one who is devoted to someone else to the disregard of his own interest. So how can these two pictures go together? The most important person. I mean, nobody walks into a room looking for the most important person and heads for the waiter, right? But it all starts to make a little more sense with the next verse. In verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, and that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, our picture of what it truly means to be great is Jesus. Because while James and John were hoping for those seats next to him so that they could be close to power, so that they could be noticed and important, Jesus gave up that seat intentionally and made himself, comparatively, nothing. Philippians 2 puts it this way. This is Paul's writing. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, like James and John. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, this kind of great is not just what Jesus did, it's who he was. The very fact that Jesus was there in a human body to have this conversation with his disciples is this kind of greatness. Jesus is the embodiment of putting your own interests underneath serving someone else. I know we get comfortable with Jesus, right? He's a good teacher. He's the cool carpenter who hangs out with outcasts. He's the guy who talks about love. And all those things are true. But I don't want us to miss that Jesus is a really big deal. Like, all of heaven stop and watch big deal. All right, I'm a Star Wars nerd. Who else is who are my fellow nerds out there, right? Except for the three movies which shall not be named. Um, so in The Force Awakens, right? First new movie of this, of the trilogy, um, there's this great scene where Han Solo is talking to Finn, and Finn's trying to convince him that he's a rebel commander, right? And he says, kind of a big deal. And and I remember watching that and just thinking, you're such a moron, like this is Han Solo, he's the coolest guy in the whole Star Wars universe, at least to me, and he's the big deal. Well, I love Han, but Jesus is an even bigger deal than Han Solo. So there's this book that I love, which I've read to my kids about a million times, and it's a Christmas book technically, but I am not bound by season when I read. so I've read it all year round. And uh, it has this beautiful idea, it's called Song of the Stars, and it encapsulates this idea that when Jesus was born, it was one of the most significant days in human history and most of the world missed it because we were too busy with our own stuff. But everything that was created from the grass on the ground to the leaves blowing in the trees to the water streaming by and the animals and the birds, they recognized him and they all were twittering and making their noises and, and saying, it's him, he's here, he's finally come. And my favorite line in the book, there's a see, picture of the manger and all the animals are gathered around it and they say, the one who made us has come to live with us. And I hope that if you've never thought about that, that that blows your mind. It is a big deal that the God who spoke the vast universes into existence, the God who understands black holes and quarks and things that don't even make sense in our own terms, that gigantic, enormous God became a tiny, vulnerable piece of his own creation. No artist in history can ever claim this. He became what he actually made so that he could save us. After we turned our backs on him and spit in his face. None of that was Jesus's interest. All of that was for our interest. Again, he is the embodiment of the greatness that doesn't have to prove it by stuffing everybody else down. He could show it by lifting us up. He is the perfect example of what it means to be a servant. So what does this mean for us today? Jesus says if you want to be great, if you want to be significant, if you want your life to have value, and I believe all of us do, you do that by putting yourself under someone else, by making someone else the focus, by serving them. And we see this in our world today. We saw it in all that 9-11 footage that we've seen so recently again, right? The firemen running into the building even though they knew it was gonna collapse. We see it all throughout COVID with those doctors and nurses and teachers and first frontline workers and, and first responders who are putting themselves on the line with our military all over the world and our police officers, so many places. I see it here at Mountain Park because I know that we are a church who love to show up and help when there's a need and there's something going on. I mean, hope for the homeless when I've been here has been full and, and we take trips to Rocky Point. I know that you are a church that gets that we are servants. That's part of who we are as followers of Christ. But I also know And maybe this is just me, but sometimes serving gets put on the back seat to convenience or to, I don't really feel like doing that, or to, I'm just so busy, or to, I don't like that person, or to, I don't want to do that. And sometimes Jesus comes to me and says, Lindsay, it's time to grow up a little bit. Because when I came to serve you, it wasn't convenient. It wasn't even what I wanted to do. We hear Jesus pray, Lord, if there's any other way, I'd like that option, please. It wasn't on his skill set, good at dying on cross, right? No, Jesus chose to prioritize us. And it wasn't because we're so great, I love you guys, but compared to Jesus, he doesn't need us. This is a choice of love. And you should know that the God of the universe set an incredible value on you by choosing to love you in that way. So Jesus is great and we are servants. And I'm not here to ask you if you're willing to help a friend out because I know you are. I see it all the time. What I am asking is are we willing to grow up a little? Are we willing to serve in any way that God may call us to. Maybe it'll be a tiny way, a way that doesn't even seem meaningful to us, a way that no one's ever gonna call out on Facebook or talk about as inspiring. Or maybe it's an inconvenient way that doesn't fit into my plans for the day, that requires me to adjust, that doesn't fit into how I feel or what I want or what I even feel good at but it's entirely focused on the needs of a person that God has called me to serve. Focused on his or her needs or desires, not mine. Are we willing to trust God and serve that way? Because that's the way we've been served. Not because we have a duty and a responsibility and we're marking our checklist of being really good Christians. Not even because I want to make sure my neighbor knows about Jesus, which is an important thing, but because we have been served outrageously. And it's our privilege and joy to get to show that kind of love and value to someone else, even someone who may not be grateful or deserve it in our mind. We didn't, to be honest. So I know that we are busy, and I know that there are a million and one good opportunities, and I'm not trying to guilt you into any of them, what I do want to ask is, are you willing to be available to God? Are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that you have served me in a way that I can't even comprehend, and that you've called me to show that same value and love to someone else. So God, would you help me to see the opportunity that you've put right in front of me, the one that has my name on it? Even if it doesn't look the way I expect, or what I thought I'd be doing, we help me to see it and to step out in faith and trust you. Can I also say, this starts at home. A lot of us are really good at leaving our houses and serving other people, but when we get home and someone asks us to do something, there's a resentment, or, I, "Well, you haven't," or whatever. And I, as God's been working on my heart about this, it's changed. The way that I see getting up in the night with another child or changing wet sheets again or, uh, you know, when my husband wants to sit down and have a conversation with me when I'm done and I want to go to my room and go to sleep. When I start to see those things are not just an inconvenience. They're not just in my way. These are ways and people that God has given me the opportunity to serve, to love, to put over myself, to show who Jesus is and the way he loves too. So Jesus has set a really high bar for serving. There's nothing that he could ever ask any of us to do that compares with what he's already done for us. But are we willing to follow him in that, to let him change our world with his love the way that he's changed our lives? So this week, and actually in many weeks following, right outside the doors here in our Make a Difference Center, we're going to be highlighting all sorts of different opportunities and needs where we need people to jump in and to be a part of what God is already doing here at the church and around the world. And I know there are probably 50 or 60 of us that are already serving in eight or nine ministries, so I'm probably not talking to you. But if you're not in a place where you're consistently putting someone else's needs and desires ahead of yours, then one of these opportunities is for you. The Bible says that God has created good works for us to do. He has some that are specifically for you. And this week in particular, we're going to be talking about how can we make our church a great place for kids to encounter Jesus. And I know as soon as I say kids, there are some of you that are thinking, that's not my ministry, la 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 la, right? I I understand. But can I just tell you, from someone who knows a lot of kids, that one of the most important things you could do for a child of any age in this church is to listen to them because they would love to tell you about their shoes or their dog or their band-aid or their brother or their day at school. And you taking the time to listen to them and share your stories to have a conversation with them means the world. Share your faith, share your family, share your stories. I was impacted by a dad who did that at my little Baptist church in Houston, Texas. When I was a kid, his name was Bob Bliss. He was a Sunday school teacher. And he didn't just, you know, keep me in line when we went to the water fountain or help me cut out my craft. He listened to me. And he noticed that every time there was an altar call, Lindsay Maddox went forward because she was afraid she was going to hell. And he didn't just laugh at me or talk to the pastor about how serious his messages had been. He came and he sat down and he had a conversation with me. He asked me questions. And he told me, reminded me what the Bible says, that me being saved is not about what I do or don't do. That me being saved is about knowing that Jesus paid for my sin and trusting him to to get me into heaven. That it's not about me. That man discipled me by having a conversation with me, a five, 10-minute conversation, and I still remember it today. And I know that every single one of you can have a conversation with a child that impacts them. So are you willing to be like Jesus? Are you willing to say, God, I'm available to you, to whatever you want to do with me. I am your servant and I'm here to show the world the kind of God we serve, who served me in such a way that it changed me forever. And if you're here today and, and everything I'm saying is just like, I, I don't get this, Lindsay, like, like the whole Jesus served me, Jesus loved me, I don't see that. I would love, our prayer team at the end of the service would love to have the opportunity to introduce you to that God to Jesus who prioritizes you at such a high level. So I pray that you would come and let us introduce you. But now the prayer team, I'm sorry, the the worship team's gonna come out and lead us in a little bit more worship. And uh, before they do, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have prioritized us. Lord, you saw a girl who was lost in her own ways and you came after me. You chose to call me back to you, to love me in an outrageous way, God. And I thank you that you give us the opportunity to be a part of that too, Lord, to love other people in a way that's outrageous, that shows them how much they matter to you. So God, I pray that you would help us to see the opportunities, God, not just to be busy, but Lord, to be about your work. Help us to be willing. Help us to be humble, Help us to be overwhelmed by your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.